Good morning, I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel, and today we're going to be continuing our series on uh, the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, called The Big Reveal. So the passage we're going to look at today uh, is one that's very difficult to understand. And there's two statements from Jesus that uh, cause fear, dread in the heart of many believers because it's being taught incorrectly. So let's take a look. The first one is this. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So deny, deny himself. I've seen this taught uh, to mean like living a life of self-denial or talking about self-discipline, which means that every time I fall asleep when I'm praying or neglect my Bible reading or even cheat on my diet, I'm not being self-disciplined and so I'm not taking up my cross. And, you know, it comes to me in self-discipline, I'm not going to get any awards for sure. So no matter what our good intentions are, we'll fall, fail and fail again in carrying them out. So does that disqualify us from heaven? Here's the second one that really is a hard one. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of the Father with his holy angels. You know, that one brings to mind a story I hear all the time, and you probably are familiar with it too, where there's uh, people in some communist church or country somewhere worshiping together, and a soldier comes in. Does getting sound familiar? And the soldier says, who of you believe in Jesus Christ? And uh, anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, you may leave now. And of course, several people walk out because they know what's coming. And then he turns to the rest of the, t- the people who are ready to uh, proclaim their understanding and love for Jesus Christ, and he says, good, now the fake ones are gone, the real ones can worship together. And it's a story I've heard many times in different uh, ways, but um, it, it kind of gives a message of this. If, we, if we're not willing, if we are willing to deny Christ, then Jesus will deny us in heaven. Well, that's a hard one, because, you know, someday we may face that. Who knows? And if we do, will we be brave enough to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And if we don't, does that mean he's going to deny us when we try to uh, arrive in heaven? Well, I don't think either of those statements mean either of those things in light of the context in which Mark placed them. I think there's something deeper and more profound here than our self-discipline or our bravery to proclaim Jesus in front of a sword or gun. It's something that the disciples had not yet learned, something that would change all of their ideas as Jesus is Messiah. And those words will have a tremendous impact on us as well. So we're going to take a look at this section in Mark and get to the bottom of what those tricky commands actually do mean for us today. The story, and here's a map, takes place on the way to Caesarea Philippi. It's actually in Gentile territory, and it's located about 25 miles north of Bethsaida, which is at the top of the Sea of Galilee. I think you can probably spot it there. Um, Gentile territory. So let's read Mark uh, 8, 27 to 38 together, and we'll dig in. So Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. 
And he warned them not to tell, or excuse me, he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, these are hard words. You know how I've struggled with them this week. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give us a very clear understanding of what Jesus was really trying to get at with his disciples that day when he gave them this news. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be open and that you would help us to understand and that your word will transform us. We love you and thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage, totally pivotal in the Gospel of Mark. Some people even label it the hinge passage, where it turns a little bit and goes a different direction. The first half of Mark, he's systematically been revealing Jesus Christ to us, step by step, things about Jesus in his story. This is what we've learned. First, we learned of his power, all the miracles he'd made when he cast out demons, so many healings, including a paralytic, a man's withered hand, healing the hemorrhaging woman and the Syrophoenician's daughter uh, from afar, and the deaf man and the blind man and calming the winds and the the waves of a storm, sending a legion of demons into a herd of pigs, raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, feedings of the 5,000s and later the 4,000s, and walking on water. Power? Got power? Yes. He also has been telling us about his authority um, over satanic powers, where they have to listen and obey him, and that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't have to follow the rules that the uh, Pharisees put out for them, of his faithful, of his kingdom teachings, parables like the sower and the seed, the farmer and the planting of seeds, the mustard seed, amazing the people in synagogues with his teaching. We saw his faithfulness to his father as he resists the temptation of the devil, gets up early in the morning to spend time in prayer, total obedience to him. And we also see his associations with sinners his disregard for religious conventions, and the oral law. So all of these things Mark has made very plain to us in the first eight chapters of his uh, gospel. But now, this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, everything changes. With a new revelation, the Son of Man has come to suffer and die. And from here onward, the theme of coming, suffering, and rejection is prominent in the rest of Mark's gospel. So this pivotal moment begins when Jesus asks his disciples what people think about him. Specifically, who do people say I am? They give him a few things that they've heard. John the Baptist, or some kind of reincarnation of John the Baptist, since he's dead. 
Um, maybe some people say he's Elijah, the great prophet who was taken up without having to die into heaven and was expected to reappear at the time of the Messiah's coming. Or one of the prophets giving the word of God to the people. And by the way, Jesus was a prophet, but he's much greater than any who came prophesying before him. Now Jesus gets very personal with his next question. Who do you say I am? And Peter, typical Peter, speaks up first with great conviction and insight. You are the Christ. Now to understand what Peter meant by that statement, we have to look at what the first century Jews believed about the coming Messiah. <clears throat> they knew he would be appointed, anointed, excuse me, set apart for service to God. Actually, the word Christ is Greek for anointed one. Uh, priests, kings, and prophets in ages past had all been anointed with oil, setting them aside, dedicating them to God's surface, service, and putting them under God's protection while they served. They also knew in the first century that Jesus would be a prophet greater than Moses. It's a verse that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. They were looking for that prophet, who would, one who would be a greater prophet than Moses. They also knew he'd be a mighty warrior, coming to, the, to lead the nation of Israel to freedom from their enemies. And we see that in Zechariah and many other places. I'm just giving you sample verses. These things are repeated throughout prophecy. They knew that he would be from the line of King David, a royal line that God promised would be forever. And finally, they knew he would reign in Jerusalem over a reunited and restored Israelite kingdom. That's who they were looking for. But what they didn't think was this. Never was it heard in Israel that the Messiah would suffer, be rejected, or killed. You might wonder if they ever read Isaiah 53, right? About the prophecy, about the suffering of the servant, the mocking, the shame, the agony on the cross. Here's just a few snippets from that chapter. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was pierced through for our transgressions. The chastening upon, for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. He was cut off from the land of the living. Seems pretty clear to me. And I always wondered why the Jews had ignored that part of the prophecy, because, boy, it sure is plain that this was going to be a suffering servant as well as a victorious one. But then I found out that a Targum, which is an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, they, uh, they talk about Isaiah 53, but they didn't miss it. They just assumed that this was going to be the suffering of the people, not of the servant, not the anointed one. So their expectations and hopes for a Messiah were high. And when did it start? It really started during the exile, when they were uh, apart from the country that they loved, uh, under oppression of other governments. The prophets gave them hope of a leader who would conquer their enemies and bring them all home. You see it over and over again in those prophets at the time. And that hope was fueled even further because in a century behalf, uh, and a half before Jesus, there was a battle, and the Jews went against, this is Maccabees and all that, that, that happened during the Hanukkah time, the Seleucid Greeks, and gave them a year of self-rule and autonomy, political independence. And that little bit of history, that one year of being without an oppressor, only whetted the appetites and made people want the Messiah more. As you can imagine, they've already tasted freedom, 
and now they don't they want to go back but it was imperative that peter and the rest of the disciples understood the suffering part of his mission before they went around saying jesus was the messiah they were on the right track but they still had a lot to understand and he came to give himself as a sacrifice suffer the punishment that we deserve clear the way to forgiveness and mercy he came to, de to defeat spiritual death by rising again from the grave. He did not come, at least this first time, to lead Israel to political independence. He did not. He came to set them free, all right, but it was from the slavery of sin. So if the disciples started to spread the word that the Messiah had come, the Jews, in their misunderstanding of what he had come to do, their countrymen would be whipped into revolutionary fervor. And with an uprising like that, many lives would be lost, and Jesus' true mission would only get lost in the chaos of war. So Jesus warned them, tell no one about him being the Messiah, at least for the time being. It would only get in the way of his true mission. And it really wasn't necessary at that point that people knew that he was the Messiah until after he had died and then rose again. So following up in that warning, Jesus, for the first time, teaches them about what his messiahship really means. He will suffer, he will be rejected, and he will rise again from the dead. And Mark assures us he told them all as plainly as possible. He wasn't speaking in parables, he wasn't speaking in metaphors. He was saying the literal words about his inevitable future. That word translated for plainly also can mean boldly or confidently. In no uncertain terms, the disciples were on notice. Now, you can imagine what they were thinking, right? Wait, what? This does not compute with the Messiah that we've been looking for. It's almost like he's speaking a foreign language to them. Suffer? Rejected? Killed? Peter was horrified, so he takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. Imagine that, rebuking the Son of God. Well, Jesus rebukes right back in very strong language. He says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now, obviously, Peter is a little mixed up. Why is Jesus calling him Satan? Well, it occurred to me yesterday, my husband and I went off to see our daughter Addison play soccer, which was an interesting thing. Um, she plays with a league that's, I think, six- and seven-year-olds, so nobody hardly knows what the heck they're doing out there. And so they, it was so funny. The whole team, they all like go in these two cl this clump, these teams, follow the ball everywhere. Nobody was waiting in their positions anywhere. <laughs> it was kind of chaotic. But anyway, it was a lot of fun to watch and cheer a granddaughter on. But this is what happened during, I don't forget how many periods there are in soccer, but after a period had ended and they got together with their coach, then she sent them back out on the field. And, she, and then as the kids all took their places, they actually did have them evidently, and they waited for the next period to begin, she went around to each kid. She said, what goal are we shooting for? And the kid would point. Okay, what goal are we shooting for? Point. What goal are we shooting for? Point. And you know why, of course. Because they're little and they would forget, oh yeah, the goal switched this time. So she wanted to make sure every kid would be marching that ball to the right goal. Why? Because if they scored in the other goal's net, the other team would get the point. They'd be scoring for the opposite team. You know, uh, Oprah, one time, this was a long time ago when she still had her talk show, I was watching her. They were doing a piece on um, 
Christianity. I don't even remember the subject that it was, moral issues, something like that. Um, and, but she made this declaration. The God I believe in does not judge. And I thought to myself, okay, so I don't know where you found this God that doesn't judge, um, but he's not in the Bible. It was the God of her imagination. Just like Oprah, though, Peter's ideas of the Messiah had come from man, men who picked and chose what scriptures were about Christ and what were not. And Messiah came up out of their compilation. We can only get an accurate picture of God from the totality of God's word. We don't get to decide who he is. And if we do do that, we end up with a God of our imaginations, a God who's created by our felt needs. And living by our self-created concepts can be a very dangerous thing. In this case, in the first century, the Jewish leaders actually did not recognize the Messiah when he was right in front of them because of their mistaken ideas. It had been appointed by God that the Messiah would achieve victory over the forces of evil through the shame of the cross. From the beginning of time, Revelations calls Jesus the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. It was always in the plan. So ironically, as Peter tries to avert Jesus from suffering, he was opposing a very key part of God's plan, that suffering is the way that he would deal with the sin of mankind. And here's the point. An inability to accept a suffering Savior is actually refusing the word and will of God, which God's will does not conform to the niceties of our human expectations. Jesus was calling Peter Satan because at that moment, refusing to embrace the suffering of the Messiah, he was actually playing for that opposing team, Satan himself. The word Satan is derived from a Hebrew word meaning adversary. He's an adversary against God and against God's beloved creation. And when human terms conflict with the things of God, we're not acting as disciples of Christ. We are taking our cue from the other side, Satan himself. So knowing just how damaging it would be for the disciples to hold that incorrect view of him, Jesus calls the rest of his disciples, along with the crowd present, to teach them how suffering is a part of his purpose. And here comes that first tricky one. He says this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, religion at that time, when he was talking to them, rather than being about faith and humility, had morphed into something completely different from the Jews. Remember at the beginning of Matthew, where, where Jesus is talking about the Pharisees who walk around with long faces and torn garments to make sure everybody knows that they're fasting. Or that trumpets would blow as they put their offering in the place so everyone would know they were giving an offering. Um, or making some long, drawn-out prayer and making it so that you know they're spiritual and everybody can see it. Paul said it like this in Romans. Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. To deny oneself is, does not mean to live a life of self-denial or self-discipline. To deny oneself is to uh, deny our independence and our self-sufficiency. It's to renounce our claim to having any part 
of our salvation, desires, ambitions, personal goals, and submit it all to Jesus Christ. It's a willingness to renounce ourself for Jesus Christ. The way to God, of course, is not by impressing him or convincing him what we may or may not deserve. The way to God is not by our spiritual accomplishments at all. A recognition that we bring nothing to the table. That's so important. Throwing our trust not on ourselves but on him and his sufficiency. The way to God is actually humble trust. Trusting in his grace, understanding through nothing that we can do ourselves, and that relationship never changes for the rest of our lives. I believe that's what Jesus is saying here in this, section, in this verse um, to his disciples and his other followers. If we follow Jesus, we have to embrace God's way, not our own. Suffering may be a, hard of helping us to, a part of making us do that. It'll be a part of our walk with him. Why? To keep our minds in the right frame of dependence on him. Following Jesus requires denying our natural inclinations and trusting in God's ways. And then Jesus adds this really tricky phrase, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Now, that one was a little bit hard for me too. And then I remembered the section in Philippians that Paul wrote about... um, himself. And he said, if anybody had claimed to man-made accomplishment, it was him. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a guy who studied all his life. He'd studied under Gamaliel. He was the, the Pharisee of Pharisees, and he cared so much about uh, Judaism that he was out murdering Christians before he met the Lord. All of those things would have made him, without a doubt, prime candidate for someone who could work their way to Jesus Christ. But this is what he says about all that. But whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's what taking up our cross is, crucifying our previous efforts and ideas Uh, not proving ourselves worthy to God, but giving ourselves over to God's way of his grace and his sufficiency. And then finally comes the big kahuna. Jesus says this, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What does it mean to be ashamed? Well, there's several other texts that shed a light on this. I'm about to read to you, but I want you to look for something. I want you to look for the word ashamed and connect it to what they would have been ashamed of, okay? So the first one is Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, Paul defines in several places in his letters what the gospel was. And to him, it was the news that Jesus was died and was buried and rose again. That was the gospel. So that suffering piece, that's in there. But he's not ashamed of that. Okay, next one is in 2 Timothy 1.8, which is also Paul. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me, his prisoner, but join me in the suffering of the gospel, for the gospel, according to the power of God. So again, his testimony, his suffering, might put people to shame. And he says, no way. Again, in 2 Timothy, a little bit further on, he says this, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. 
For I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And then finally, the writer of Hebrews also has something to say about shame and the gospel, suffering. He says this, For it was fitting for him, for whom all things and through whom all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation, how? Through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all one, from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Suffering in the first century was uh, viewed as a really terrible punishment from God and an indication of sin. So remember the book of Job? He's just minding his own business, offering sacrifices for his children, leading, leading a faithful life, and all of a sudden he gets hit by a firestorm of unbelievable proportions. His family is killed, his herds are all stolen or killed, his servants are all killed, and he gets all this news right, right, right in a row. And so, um, but Job's friends come along and they assume, of course, that all these things are happening to Job because he had sinned. And if he would just confess that sin, then God would restore him and ease his suffering. Job didn't buy it. He didn't buy it. And he cried out to God to, to rescue him from it all, and God stayed silent. For 37 chapters, he stayed silent while his friends just harped on him and harped on him, giving him a point that was just not true. And then finally, uh, and that whole idea is, was prevalent in the Jews at that day, on that daytime. And actually, sometimes we kind of think that, don't we? We see somebody suffering or doing something, oh, I wonder what they did wrong. Bad thought. There was a, um, remember when the disciples asked about a blind man in John 9? They said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man and his parents said he would be born blind. And Jesus said, None, none of that. He's blind to be demonstrating the glory of God. So there was suffering, it's shame and suffering in this first century. And the more intense the suffering, the more shame it brought. Jesus was letting the disciples know that the suffering he went through should not bring them shame. It was the will of God that he do so. His suffering was vital to his mission to die for the sins of the world. And whoever could not embrace it, could not accept it, the suffering Messiah, could not be saved. Because they're missing the point of the gospel completely. To be ashamed of a suffering Messiah would be to reject the salvation he was offering. So what? How should this all affect my life? Well, at the beginning of the message, we saw that this verse, same verse that we were just talking about, was often interpreted as if someone asked you, if you believe in Jesus, like that communist church, if you deny it, God will deny you in heaven. Well, I wish whoever thinks that could talk to Peter because he gave a denial of denials on the night of Jesus' arrest. Three times he denied even knowing Jesus. Was he put aside for that? Well, he thought he was, because after the resurrection, he headed back home to Galilee, back to his business, fishing on the Sea of Galilee. He thought, I think, he knew Jesus had told him, you're going to be in leadership in my coming kingdom. He knew he had said it, but that was before he denied him. And so I think he thought it was over. He'd blown it. And so he's there fishing, and Jesus comes along the shore, 
You probably know the story. They catch a bunch of fish and they bring it in. And on the beach after that breakfast, Jesus takes him aside. And he asked Peter, not once, not twice, but three times if he loved him. Three times, each one to set the record straight. Three times. Jesus never even brings the denial up. Instead of scolding him for his failure or telling him to fess up, he tells Peter, feed my sheep. And with that command, he let Peter know that his sin already forgiven. He'd already died for that sin. And he would not, would not be allowed to stand in the way of his relationship with and service to God. And Peter's not the only one. We can see God's grace in a lot of failures over and over again in Scripture. Think about Abraham, who told Sarah to lie about their relationship, which ended up getting her into the Pharaoh's harem. Faithless. He wasn't faithful. He didn't trust God. But that did not stop God from filling his promise to make him the father of the chosen nation. Then there was Jacob, who had deceived his father, and he thought that uh, deception, and through that deception, uh, sorry, robbed his brother of his firstborn blessing. He had to flee the country because his brother wanted to kill him. But as he was on the borderline, poised to go in to a new land, God appears to him. And what does he do? He reassures him that he would go with him to the foreign land. All that sin was forgiven. And God gave him the 12 sons whose descendants would be the 12 tribes of Israel. Then there's another big failure, David, King David, who abused his power as king to take Uriah's wife and then have him murdered to cover up the scandal. And after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he confessed his sin, God forgave it, and he continued to bless his kingdom. In fact, God promised that the Messiah would come through his family line and would reign for eternity. And there's plenty more. I just gave you three that came right off the top of my head. But being ashamed, uh, being, denying Jesus Christ will not wreck our relationship with God because each of those is done without faith and th things that are done without faith are considered sin. But every one of our sins, every one that we have done in the past, that we're currently involved in in the present and happens in the future, all of it is already paid for. All of it's been taken care of. All of it was put on Jesus at the cross. It's the righteousness of Christ that we wear, not our own. And we have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that he will never leave us and that we will be part of God's family someday. So can the sin of denial or any other grievous sin damage our relationship with God? Not on God's end. So to finish, I want to tell you this little story about a Rolls-Royce. I don't even know. Are they still in existence? <laughs> they were a big deal. And when I was a kid, if you had a Rolls-Royce, you, you had it made. You were somebody with prestige and, and um, because it had such luxury, it was, uh, had a reputation for excellent craftsmanship, and it cost a lot of money. So it was considered an ultimate symbol of wealth. And evidently, the Rolls-Royce company took their reputation very seriously. There's a story about a guy, a rich guy, who was driving his new Rolls-Royce over the Alps. He was in Switzerland. When he heard this bing, quiet, disquieting twang, his front spring had broken. So he gets to a phone. This is in the 50s. He gets to the phone. Um, he calls the Rolls plant in London. And in what seemed like no time flat, three gentlemen arrived got out of the car, fixed up his car for what it was, and, 
and uh, waved goodbye, and off they went, and the man was able to continue on his way. So he expected a bill for all of that, and so about six months later, he still hadn't received it, and nobody was answering his inquiries. So finally, he took it upon himself to go to the Rolls-Royce factory back in London and tell them, you've never given me a bill for the repair on the road in Switzerland. And uh, after a brief delay, the manager of the plant comes over. And he looks at him kind of reproachfully, and he says, there must be some mistake, sir. There is no such thing as a broken spring on a Rolls-Royce. <laughs> you know, no matter how that car mis malfunctioned, being a Rolls meeting a Rolls-Royce meant it was perfect as far as the company was concerned. They'd rather make up the difference themselves to keep the customer relationship that would allow a malfunction to stand in the way. Well, you know what? That's how it is with us and God. He sees us as perfect because we wear the righteousness of Christ. We are his children because of what he provided for us. We can never out his grace. When we embrace the grace and forgiveness of God, and we accept the sufficiency of his payment for our sin, we understand the gospel of Christ. I don't know about you. I'm not ashamed of it. I wish I could shout it from the rooftop. Jesus saved me, not because I deserved it, but because he loved me. He bore my sin on the cross, and now I am forever free of God's condemnation. It's a glorious truth, not something to be ashamed of. And the more enthusiastically we can grasp it, the stronger our faith will be. Let's pray. God, we thank you for paying for our sin in full, that once we believe in Jesus, we have not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. You did it all. The only thing left for us to do is embrace it all. Help us to always do things your way, not follow our own agenda, our devices, our ideas. We love you, and we know that always, always, your way is best. Lord, we also thank you for this food that we're about to eat, and uh, pray your blessing upon our time together as we fellowship over a meal. Thank you, Lord, for New Hope Chapel and the fact that you are present with us and at work in us and that uh, we, can, we expect to see great things from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.